Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34, that is where we are going to be. Uh, One of the scribes came and heard them arguing, and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? And Jesus answered, the foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength And to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. Would you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we we thank you for just the joy and the privilege that it is to be able to read your word. That we are challenged by the truths that we find in the scriptures over and over. We thank you for that. And God, we we ask that that you would illuminate this passage for us today. That you would help us ask good questions of ourselves and of our hearts. That we would be led to a, a deeper love of you and a deeper love for one another. Oh, Jesus We thank you for your sacrifice that makes this possible. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, just to give you a little bit of roadmap for where we're going. Like I said, this sermon was supposed to be preached last week. And I had a solid 40-minute sermon. I mean, it was jam-packed. We were going to talk about a lot of things. But since I was sick, I had an extra week to prepare. And wouldn't you know it? Now I've got like an 80-minute sermon. So, so what we're going to do, uh, I, t- I talked with Joe, and we're gonna, I- I'm going to preach two weeks in a row. We're this week and next week. And this week, we're really going to cover this passage. And, and, and we're going to look at what it means to love God. And we're going to look at what it means to love others. And then we're going to look at the scribe's response, and we're going to ask questions of ourselves. And next week, we're going to look at what a biblical definition of love is. And that's because... Love is kind of uh, a little bit loosey-goosey, right? It's a little bit loosey-goosey in our, in our understanding, in, in today's cultural context. Uh, in fact, uh, as I was preparing, and y'all know, your pastoral staff loves to joke around. Uh, we do, we send each other funny text messages, and we joke around about things. And one of the things that we have to do, though, is you know, we have to get the title of the sermon uh, so that it gets printed on your notes. And I'm always the guy that is never ready with his title. I'm like last minute turning it in. Well, as I was preparing this, I, I texted Joe. Uh, what, about, uh, what about what's love got to do with it? <laughs> you know? And uh, funny enough, by the way, that song, you know, Tina Turner, what's love? That's, that song is the song that gets stuck in my head when I fly with students. I don't know why, but that's what happens. Um, so I texted that to him, you know, as a joke, you know. And, and then the next morning, I'm thinking over the scriptures, and I'm, and I'm thinking, and, okay, what, what t- I really got to get the title to them today. What, what is it going to be? And I texted him. I was like, I can't get love songs out of my head. 
I was like, that's all, that's all I have right now. And I was like, what about uh, love is a many splendid thing? Love lifts us up where we belong. All you need is love, you know? To which Joe replied, love potion number nine. And then I was like, that's not helping Joe. And then I was like, ooh, the power of love. And uh, really, the, uh, hopefully what you see here is that love is, love is all over the place, right? It, it's in our songs. It's in our movies. It's in our books. We see it on TV. And it, it means a lot of different things. It means a lot of different things. It's really kind of a complicated word. But because the fact that it's complicated, and because this passage is so important that we need to get this right, I was like, you know what? Let's do two sermons on it. So we're going to do the passage today and talk about a biblical definition of love next week. So please uh, come back, invite your friends, um, and, and we'll actually look at what love is according to the scriptures, according to the truth of God's word. Um, but for today... We're looking at this passage. And just to reiterate how important this is, David Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. He says, if we are going to attribute our sentimental, loose, unjust, and unrighteous notions of love to the everlasting Godhead, then we place ourselves in the most precarious position. This matters. This is a big passage. We need to be careful with it and take it seriously. I mean, Jesus says this is the greatest commandment and the second commandment, right? The second greatest commandment. We, we need to pay attention. When we look at this, we're going to see uh, first that we are to love God wholeheartedly with every ounce of our being, with all that we are. That's how we are to love God. And then we'll see uh, how we're to love our neighbor as ourselves, okay? So that's kind of where we're going. Uh, let, let's take a look at the words again. Look at uh, verse 29. Jesus answers him. The foremost is. That's, that's the, the greatest, right? The most important. There was a debate going on uh, at this time. What, what's the most important commandment? And, you know, we, we kind of understand this because we understand that there are probably degrees to law. I mean, for example, first degree murder. Pretty serious law. Speed limit. I know not all of you are going 70 miles an hour on the loop, right? Like, that, that's, just, that's just true. We understand that there are degrees. By the way, I'm not, I'm not condoning breaking some laws and not others. I'm just saying we understand that there are degrees, right? And this was a common debate in the day. So what's the most important, Jesus? What's the most important? And this is a continuation of the trap. They're trying to trap Jesus. What's, what's the most important? And Jesus answers, well, the foremost is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, is one Lord. Or some of your translations, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And, and, and even still, some of your translations say, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Isn't that interesting? There, there's, a, there's a lot going on with this word, this word that is translated as one here. Um, the, there's, this, uh, there's this idea that uh, the Lord our God, the Lord alone, it's an affirmation that, that he was supposed to be the sole object of the Israelites' devotion, okay? And, and, and we find support in that in other texts uh, throughout, especially in the context of Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is where this is quoted. And if you want to, you can uh, kind of keep your finger there because we'll be going there in a second to read a little bit more. 
But the context that follows is that uh, they are to follow him, uh, that he is the object of their devotion. Uh, But another way to think about this is that the Lord is our God. The Lord is unique. Unique. And in this case, the text is is affirming uh, people's allegiance to the Lord as well as the Lord's superiority to all other gods. It would also imply that uh, that the, the only one worthy of their worship is this God. Uh, we, see, we see this supported in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and Deuteronomy chapter 10, this idea that, that God is unique, God is one of a kind. And in fact, uh, that's the way that Song of Solomon in chapter 6 uses that word when talking about the beloved. The beloved is, is one, one of a kind. We understand that that words need to be understood within the context, within the way that they're being used, because uh, one is a good translation for this word, but if I was to, like, walk up to my wife and be like, hey, honey, you're one. I'd be like, one what? Right? That doesn't make any sense. One, okay, one. Wait, how many others are there, you know? I I mean, but if I walked up to her and said, honey, you are the one. Right? Or if I said, honey, you are one of a kind. Right? That gets the whole, that gets the whole message across. Uh, turn, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. If, you, if you're not sure where it is, just sing the books of the Bible like I do. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Fifth book. Fifth book of the Bible. All right. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel. That word hear is shema in Hebrew. You'll hear this, these verses described as the Shema. This was a, a, a creed, essentially, that, that Jews had to learn. Uh, they would recite it twice a day, even, even from the age uh, of being a child. This is a, a very important verse in the context of Judaism. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on your doorposts of the house. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. That's an important context of what's going on here. That's an important context. And the idea here is that because God is one, because he is unique, because he is one of a kind, he alone is worthy of their love, so much so that they are to love him with all that they are. And we are to love him with all that we are that it is meant to permeate every aspect of the way that the Israelites live, and it should still permeate every aspect of the way that we live, the way that we speak, the way that we think, the way that we choose to interact with people. And this world is all predicated upon our love for God. That's the idea here. Now that word, one, there, used in Deuteronomy is echad. Say that with me. Echad. Yes, that was, that was great. You guys did great. Uh, my professor, when I was in seminary, told me that, you know, you get it right 
when you get a little bit of spittle on the person in front of you. You know, echad. I don't think any of you guys did that. But, um, but that's, that's a really important word, and, and I, I want to uh, kind of point this out. Um, one writer said this about that word. Uh, that, well, now I'm lost in my notes. Hang on. Uh, the Old Testament is clear that there is one God. And the verse known in Hebrew as the Shema declares that God is one and was foundational in ancient Hebrew culture for creating a monotheistic understanding of God at a time of rampant polytheism. However, the Hebrew word used for one in this passage is echad, which often means to be united or forming a composite oneness. This word is the same word used in Genesis 2.24 when Adam and Eve are made one flesh. Adam and Eve were two persons united into a composite oneness of one flesh. It's also used to imply uniqueness, one of a kindness. This implies unity within the person of the Godhead in Deuteronomy 6.4. The Hebrew word that specifically means only or only one or solitary is yahid, and it's never used in its 13 appearances in the Old Testament to refer to God. I wrote that. I wrote that on a paper when I was in seminary. So this is the one time that I can say one writer said this, and I don't have to cite it, but I'm going to. Uh, but that just shows you this word is really important, and our understanding of how words work are really, really important. In fact, uh, this is what Oswald Chambers says about love just to try to drive it home that we need to get this right. Love for the Lord is not an ethereal, intellectual, or dreamlike thing. It is the intensest, most vital, most passionate love of which the human heart is capable. It is the, the intensest, most vital, most passionate love of which the human heart is capable. Do you guys think about loving God like that? That is the idea here in this section. In fact, uh, this, is, this is kind of uh, the amazing thing. The Hebrew text here in Deuteronomy chapter 6 doesn't mention mind like it does in Mark when Jesus is speaking. The Hebrew text doesn't mention mind. And the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of Deuteronomy, doesn't mention heart. Hmm, that's interesting. There, there's these words that don't show up in these translations, but Jesus includes both of them. And there's a little bit of play going on just in the cultural context of what is the center of a person? Where does the center of a person come from? Their, their, their loves, their joys, their desires, all of that. Some, some thought the mind, some thought the heart, and Jesus is saying, I don't care. It doesn't really matter. It's all of you. All of you. Everything that you are is to love God. It's pretty profound. It's pretty profound. Our love for God should be an all-encompassing love that drives us to study his word. That, that keeps us thinking about him and speaking about him with ease throughout our day. Our love for God affects the way we think, the way we speak, and the way we live. Our whole being is affected by our love for the Lord pretty amazing. I hope when you guys think about your love for God, you think about it that way. 
So why does Jesus say this is the greatest commandment? Y'all remember how many commandments there are in the Old Testament? I know some of you do. 613. 613 commandments. I can barely remember the Ten Commandments, okay? There were 613 commandments in the Old Testament. And Jesus boils them all down to love God with all that you are and love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, in in the parallel account of this uh, text in Matthew chapter 22, verse 40, Jesus says that on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. That is like uh, the whole law and the prophets. That's another way of saying like the, the whole Old Testament. All the commandments hang on these two. Why? Why is that true? It's because love for God with all our heart, all we are, leads to following Christ faithfully. Love for God with all of our heart, with all that we are, leads to following Christ faithfully. Uh, David Garland says it like this. He says, uh, we must love God with all of our heart. In the Bible, the heart is more than a pumping station. It is the command center of the body where decisions are made and plans are hatched. It is the center of our inner being which controls our feelings, emotions, desires, and passions. The heart is where religious commitment takes root. It is in our innermost being where we decide for or against God. We can give assent with our mind and lips, but it is the telltale heart that betrays our true loyalties. And you guys know what he's referencing here, right? The Edgar Allan Poe's telltale heart. You guys remember that? Bum, bum. Bum, bum. Bum, bum. It was the beating of that heart that haunted, that haunted the man in that story. Why? Because he was trying to keep it hidden. He was trying to keep this secret, and the telltale heart haunted him. That's, that's, what, that's what David Garland is saying here. That Look, you can... You can uh, Say that you love God. You can even do things that look like you love God. But it really is about your heart that will tell you where your true loyalties lie. In fact, this was much of Jesus' teaching about the religious leaders of the day, right? The Pharisees were pretty good at keeping the law. But they were known as whitewashed tombs. In other words, they looked great on the outside, but they were hollow and dead on the inside. That's the idea here, that a love for God affects your inner being through which everything outward flows. Matthew Matthew Henry says it like this. He says, uh, where there is a commanding principle in the soul, there is a disposition to every other duty. In other words, the commanding principle of your soul, what you believe, what you you actually believe and feel and desire in your heart, that is what provides the disposition, the, the attitude toward every other duty, toward every act of service. Love is the leading affection of the soul. The love of God is the leading grace in the renewed soul. So it's love of God that is undivided, which leads us toward obedience and grace in the rest of our lives. And James, uh, James K. Smith says, says it like this in his book, uh, You Are What You Love. He, he, he references 
an old Russian uh, book that's made into a film. And, and the idea of the story is that there's this room, and in the center of this room, when you walk into it, you get what your heart most loves. You get what you desire. And this man is about to open the door, and he stops. And he becomes terrified. Why? Because he begins to ask the question, do I know what I most love in my heart? And that is a scary thought. Because we can become really adept at making our lives look like a certain thing. But our hearts are still bent towards selfish ways and things that are not God-loving. That's what we need to think about here. Now, uh, to, to try to I illustrate this idea, uh, I'm going to talk about the Super Bowl. I know it just happened. I know it was just last week. Um, I won't talk about it long because I know half of you are super happy, half of you are super mad, and half of you don't care. So, uh, uh, but at the Super Bowl, uh, you know, a man went to the Super Bowl, and uh, he, he was sitting there uh, next, to, next to an empty seat, right? He bought two tickets, one for him and one for his wife. And so he's sitting there, there's an empty seat, and, and, and somebody begins to ask him, uh, you know, why do you have an empty seat? And he just explains, you know, I bought two tickets for me and my wife a while ago, but she passed away. Uh, and the guy, uh, the guy is then asked, well, why didn't you invite any of your friends or, or family, you know? And he's like, I invited all of my friends, all of my family. Nobody wanted to come to the Super Bowl. Do you all know how much Super Bowl tickets are? Like, that's crazy, right? N nobody wanted to go. Nobody wanted to go. And, uh, and you could tell that the person was asking was just flabbergasted by this. And, and then the, the question is asked, why? Why would no one, none of your friends or family would want to go with you to the Super Bowl? And he said, well, they're all at the funeral. <laughs> all right, so it's not a true story. It's not a true story. It's a joke. It's a joke. But, but it's, meant, it's meant to illustrate that this is, that is a divided love. That is a divided love. Do you see what I'm talking about here? Yes, it's a joke. Yes, it's funny. But do you, do you see how we can pretend that Jesus Christ is dead in our lives? When we have a divided love for God, we can pretend like Jesus isn't there. Like he doesn't exist. And our brothers and sisters in Christ are at his funeral while we are free to do whatever we want. Do you see what I'm trying to say? That a divided love really is no love at all. We need to have an undivided love. We need to have an undivided love for God. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. We have to ask ourselves, what do we love? And do we love God with our whole heart, with every ounce of our being? That's one of the things that I want you thinking about this week. But the second commandment is like it. 
We are to love our neighbors as ourselves. And it's so awesome when we get to see Jesus at work. Because remember, they're trying to trap him. What's the greatest commandment? What's the greatest commandment, Jesus? And he says, love God and love others. And I'm not the first person to say this. This idea is kind of a summation of the Ten Commandments, right? You have uh, uh, the, 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 first, uh, the first four commandments are your vertical relationship to God, right? Like, uh, don't, don't have no gods before me, uh, that, that kind of thing, right? And then the rest of the commandments are your horizontal relationships, right? Do not lie, steal, cheat, don't envy, don't covet those kinds of things. So kind of what Jesus is saying here when, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? He's like, well, I think the greatest commandment is to love God, which is uh, one through four. And the second greatest commandment is to love others, which is like five through 10. That's what Jesus does, you know? And I think it's so cool. Uh, But he says, uh, we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, I have to say, this is not a call to love ourselves more. This is not a call to love ourselves more. The Bible presupposes that you already love yourself. In fact, you love yourself too much. That's kind of all over the scriptures, that we are to be turning outward. The modern therapeutic movement developed this idea that we need to have better self-esteem and and, uh, think more about ourselves and love ourselves more which is really just another way our love for God becomes divided because it forces us to look inward for everything when everything we need to focus on in our lives is outward, outward towards God and outward towards others. So if loving our neighbor as ourselves doesn't mean we've got to love ourselves more, what does it mean? Well, love of neighbor is seen in the context of holiness. Love of neighbor is seen in the context of holiness and a call toward holiness. It's a quote from Leviticus chapter 19. Turn there. Turn to Leviticus chapter 19. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, third book of the Bible, okay? In the beginning of chapter 19, verse 2, look at what it says. Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. That's, that's what this chapter is about. It is about the call toward holiness for the people of Israel and the people that follow God. The call toward holiness, okay? And then uh, through verse 8 is kind of the vertical relationship about how people relate to God, okay? And then in 9, it starts to transition towards this horizontal relationship. And I'm just going to summarize it uh, for you, it starts to talk about caring for others, things that you can do to care for others, to care for the needy, things that you should do uh, to respect others, that the, that we don't show disrespect, that when we're involved in in uh, the justice system, that we don't uh, we don't allow injustice to happen among people. Um, it talks about not being partial. Verse 15, you shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. In other words, you you don't give deference to someone who's rich, but you also don't give deference to someone who is poor. There's an evenness there. You don't hear that a lot, but that that is the context of loving your neighbor. Because when you begin to show partiality, you've immediately now not loved your neighbor that you are not showing partiality to. Do you understand 
That, that, that's the heart of what's going on here. And then if we jump to uh, verse uh, 17, you shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. What is that talking about? This, remember, it's under the context of a call toward holiness. It's under the context of a call toward holiness. If you see your neighbor involved in sin, you are actually supposed to reprove them, rebuke them, call them away from that sin. That's love. That's love. Look at this. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And that statement, I am the Lord, is punctuated all throughout. In other words, it, it is because of who God is that these things exist, that these rules exist. Now, I'm not calling you to start living according to Old Testament law, but I want you to see the heart of what is behind the idea of loving your neighbor. Because right now there's this idea that, that oh, love is just sunshine and rainbows and, and princesses and fairies and stuff like that, right? But there's, there's substance to that word. It can't only mean good feelings. You have to go to the context of what is being discussed. And it's not loving to just accept someone living in sin. If you actually care about them, you want what's best for them. And what's best for them is to live according to what God says because God knows what's best. Do you see how that kind of lines up? Now, you're not supposed to sin against your neighbor, but there's this idea that if you just accept it and allow it, that you're actually be kind of complicit in their sin. Uh, Proverbs 3.12 says this, For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. God reproves those he loves. So it is not unloving to try to correct someone back to living according to the truth. Copy? It's so important. Y'all know I have four kids. It would be wrong for me to see one of my children doing something that is not good for them and just be like, man, I'm going to let it happen because I love them so I have to accept them and agree with whatever they want to do. No. Eat your broccoli. All right, that's not, that's not righteous or unrighteous, you know. But, but you see what I'm saying? Correction is a part of love. It, it is, it is uh, connected there. Our love for one another is also the distinguishing characteristic that testifies to the world about who we are and who Christ is. In John chapter 13, verse 35, Jesus says this, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have Love for one another. When people look at you, do they see your life characterized by love? Is it a distinguishing characteristic? 1 John 4, 7 says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Love for one another is the distinguishing characteristic of a follower of Christ. Is that true of you? Is that true of me? Is that true of our church? I hope so. 
But love does not mean just princesses and rainbows and good feelings. There is a substance there. That there is action, that there is caring for one another, seeking the best for one another. Which sometimes means calling people back toward holiness, which is a hard conversation. Now, why am I harping on that so much? It's only one aspect of that. I'm harping on it because that's not what we see in our world. In our world, this idea exists that if you love someone, you just kind of have nice conversations. But, but, you know, you don't... We're all in agreement, you know? We all just love each other. No, disagreement happens. And when it comes to the truth of the word of God, something needs to be said. Now, how you say it is very important. I just said that we are supposed to be characterized by love. That there is an aspect in which the way that we act and the way that we speak to people should be gracious. Why? We were enemies of God too. We didn't deserve God's love. But because of his grace, he chose to love us. And it's because of that that we are even able to respond in love to him and then continue to love others. So we must respond in love and grace. Now, I have never made this mistake that I know of, but I have heard that sometimes when a woman looks like she might be pregnant, that sometimes someone might come up and say like, hey, when's the baby due? Or congratulations, I, I, I didn't know you were pregnant. You know, wh when do you do? I've never made that mistake that I know of. But how embarrassing is that, right? Like that, when the woman responds, oh, I'm not pregnant. Oh, okay, now we're having a different conversation. It is possible, it is possible for you to go uh, to a church or go uh, join a group of believers and they look like they are pregnant with the love of God. And they look like they are pregnant with the love of others. And it's also possible that even though it looks that way, it may not be true. Because outward action is only a part of this. And it really all comes back to the heart. It always comes back to the heart. That is why Jesus says this is the greatest commandment, to love God. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Because if you're truly loving God and truly loving your neighbor, then those outward actions will happen and they will be true. They will be honest. Amen? Amen. Francis Schaeffer says this. He said, uh, the, um, uh, love is the final apologetic. And for those of you who don't know what that is or who Francis Schaeffer is, he was a, a really well-known Christian apologist. And when I say apologist or apologetics, defense of the faith, the idea of defending the Christian faith, uh, the reason for why we believe. He said uh, that love is the final apologetic. It is the defense for which there is no defense. 
In other words, when you come into contact with someone or when someone comes into our church and they see real love for God and real love for them at play, that's it. There's no other defense that's needed for faith in Jesus Christ. Let's turn back to Mark chapter 12 as we get ready to close. Look at the scribe's response. Verse 32, this is what the scribe says to Jesus. Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Those words there, those two words really sum up the entire sacrificial system which is very important to a Jew. And he's saying, Jesus, you're right. These two commandments really sum up everything. And when Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. And we don't know what happened to this scribe. We know he wasn't far from the kingdom of God. He understands that it really is a matter of the heart that it really is a matter of the heart. But we don't know if he entered the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe he did. Maybe he said, I want to follow you. I, I believe. I hope that's true of you here today. If any of you have not entered the kingdom of God by placing your faith in Jesus Christ, this is the moment. You cannot love God and love others without first understanding that God loves you and sent his son to die on your behalf so that you may have newness of life, even life everlasting. I hope that you respond to the love of God by placing your faith in Christ. And I hope that as you move out of here and move into your week, you ask the questions, do I truly love God? Do I really love him with everything that I am? And do I love my neighbor in the way that the Bible says I'm supposed to love my neighbor? Or have I been captivated by a worldly thought of what it means to love my neighbor. Ask those questions of yourself. And then come back next week when we really dig in and dive deep on what exactly does that word mean, love? Because there is a, a biblical understanding of what the word means that I think we get confused. I'm really looking forward to sharing that with so I hope that that is uh, your, your, your prayer and your thoughts this week. And I hope we see you next week too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, thank you for loving us. Thank you for showing us 
your love in your son's sacrifice on our behalf. God, it is so easy for us to have a a divided love and I just pray that you would help us to have an undivided love, that we would love you with everything that we are, that we wouldn't try to hide things, but that our telltale heart would show our true loyalties are to you. God, would you do that for us? And would you help us to see how we can love others, how we can actually love them? Oh, God, will you do that for us this week? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.